Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. Let's have some conversation. So turn around to those who are next to you and answer this question. Where in your life do you see yourself stuck? Freedom. We yearn for it. We long for it. But then once we get it, what do we do with it? Now, last Sunday was Juneteenth. Uh, yep, I mean, it, it is. It's a, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing because it's not necessarily a celebration. It's, it's more of an, an observance and an announcement. All right? Because it's not celebrating the end of the war, of the Civil War. And it's not necessarily celebrating the announcement of, of freedom. It's celebrating the last group of slaves, 250,000 slaves in Texas, in Galveston, Texas, that get an announcement finally on June 19th with troops present that they're free. But the amazing thing when we start reading the stories and we start studying the data was even though there was an announcement of freedom, how many slaves actually went back instead of living out freedom, how many of them went back to work and serve their masters? So just because freedom may be right there in front of us, even though freedom may be announced, even though there are troops ready to enforce and fight on your behalf, the truth is that if we don't see ourselves free, we are not free. And so I want to spend a little time talking about mental models and talking about perspectives and talking about the things that keep us in jail, that keep us stuck. So at that time, uh, in 1860 during the census, there were four and a half billion Africans in the United States. Half a million of them were free. And interestingly enough, well, I'll come back, I'll come back to that, that fact uh, towards the end. But half a million were free. Four million were in slavery. And when we talk about this, this, this thing about what keeps us bound, uh, this week, uh, so I administrate a summer school on behalf of the, our school district in Pasadena. And one of the instructors pre, uh, presented this image, the image of a baby elephant. Now, I'm not an animal behaviorist, so I do not know if the story that they told is true or not. But, ooh, it was good preaching. So, <laughs> all right, so let's, uh, let's skip over to a baby elephant. And this is what they shared. They shared that in order to keep elephants from running away when they are a baby... They tie a strong rope around the elephant's leg. And so as they grow, and, and because the rope is so strong, they are conditioned. They are trained to believe that they can never break free from that rope. So by the time that they are large and full-grown adults, even though they have more than enough power to break free from the rope, they do not because they see themselves as still bound. How many of you can relate to that? 
I just uh, a couple months ago came back from a sabbatical. Um, part of that was a, was a breakdown. A breakdown in tranquility and peace and, and quiet, but a breakdown nevertheless because what was being broken down were the lies that have been in my head for 62 years. So I want to go to this verse in Exodus 14. Uh, Corey read this last week. Here they are. God has done amazing miracles for the children of Israel. They have now been released by Pharaoh. They are moving forward towards their promised land, right? And they come up against the Red Sea. And not only are they facing this blockage, the Red Sea in front of them, but when they turn around, they see that Pharaoh's army is closing in on them. And they make this statement. Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It is better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Better to be a slave. That is the mindset that keeps so many of us bound. It is the mindset. I, uh, our nonprofit does uh, work with parole reentry, and it is very critical that all the resources that once someone who has been incarcerated is released back into the community, you have to get resources to them, ways to help them live out a more positive life within the first 72 hours, because if that does not happen in the individual's mind, they're going to go and commit another crime that will take them right back into prison because they don't have the structure within themselves to see themselves free. And so they go back to a structure of oppression. It's the same thing that I saw in my life as someone who was uh, abused and I kept going back to my abuser. It's that same mentality when we read studies about people who win the lottery and end up poorer after the lottery than they did when they won the money. And how many times in our lives do we say, man, if I only had this, if I only had that, then my life will be so much different. And then when we get it, our lives are so much worse because it's not the thing that changed us. It's not the position that changed us. Being, get, getting out of jail is not the thing that sets us free. It's what's in here. That's the true prison. And so... Let's look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Um, I'm skipping a little bit back and forth in Exodus just to get back to this thing about slavery and, and this mentality of being enslaved that does not allow us personally to be free. Right before God gives them through Moses the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, this statement is made. God spoke all these words. I am God, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a life of slavery. The first thing to note here, and um, while I was on my sabbatical, I, I spent a couple of weeks in Carmel. There was this wonderful All Saints Church that had a guest cottage that uh, overlooked the ocean, and I am just a, a beach guy, beach in the morning, beach at night. I'm a son of a beach. I mean, it's just... Ocean in me, it's just where I feel God. It's where I feel at rest. It's where I feel at peace, and it's where I can be still and listen. 
And so the, uh, the pastor there, Pastor Amber, said, hey, do you want to do some spiritual direction? I said, sure. She said, well, let's just have a conversation. Let's just talk and just see what comes up. And I was sharing with her some things and just pouring out my heart. And she happened to come back to this verse. Um, William mentioned something about hope as resistance. And uh, there's a book called Sabbath as Resistance. And so in, she was sharing with me a passage from that book. And she said that when God makes this statement, what God is saying, that the first thing to note here is before God gives these commandments is, he, is the fact that he has brought us out of slavery and does not want us to return to a slavery of any form. And that, just that little truth just started eating away at me and eating away at me and I started to have a breakdown right there in those beautiful surroundings because I realized all of the narratives that I was holding on to that was keeping me in jail. And I I contacted one of my friends. He says, hey, man, do you need to talk? Do I need to get you an intervention? I said, no, that's not it. It's me. It's me. I have seen the enemy, and the enemy is me. And if I do not leave this cottage with tangible evidence that I see myself the way that God sees me and love myself the way that God loves me, then I'm going right back to jail. And I cannot self-sabotage another day. I can't live another day of self-sabotage. So, these are, in, in Proverbs, if you, if you show that slide, Proverbs uh, 23, verse 7, it says that as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. And one of the early truths I learned in just trying to break the bondage of abuse is that I will never live any higher than how I see myself. It doesn't matter who is encouraging me. It doesn't matter what opportunities are being brought in my direction. I am stuck because of how I see myself. And the two narratives that I had to deal with, uh, one of my journal entries, and I, I guess this is the, the day where we're going to just use some colorful metaphors, but uh, out of my journal, one of the things that I wrote was, this is my moment. This is my moment right now. I'm either going to be David and cut this thing's head off, or I'm going to be Saul and stay in hiding and keep letting Goliath talk shit. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the narratives in my head. And the biggest one was fear. So many, it's like a cornucopia of fear living inside of me. I'm doing all the spiritual direction, and I'm, I'm doing centering prayer. And my brother, the first thing that he says to me when he's doing the centering prayers, he says, man, this is not you going to the garden and smelling the flowers. This is you doing some deep excavation, and you're going to go deep down past that hard soil to get to the fertile soil and bring it up. But he said that process is kind of shocking because you see what's buried there. And I saw all the fear that was buried in me. And one of those narratives is fear. Uh, there's a, uh, you should see a slide there that says fear. And what uh, one person taught me is that fear is false evidence appearing real. And all of these narratives, these narratives usually show up in saying that you are not enough. I am a brilliant writer, but I have been blocked for 15 years. 
it is, creativity is in my soul, is the thing that I live to do. But every time I opened up the laptop or picked up the pen to write something. Now, if anyone else came to me with help with their script, I was their script doctor. In five minutes, it's like, oh, man, you saw, that's what I needed. That, ah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But for myself, what was playing in my head every time I had an idea is you're too old. What makes you think you can do this now? Who do you think you are? You are never going to be anything. The voice of, as Pastor Amber shared with me, Eric, that's the voice of superego. Do you know where that comes from? I said, no. I said, it comes from your parents. And as soon as she said it, all, I just, it's just like a movie playing of everything that my dad said when he was abusing me, everything that he was just beating into me, that you will never be nothing. You will never be anything. You are an accident. You are, these were the words, you are, and then he would just beat that into me, physically. And so even though people and teachers and others would say, oh my God, you're so intelligent, you're so amazing, you're so wonderful, every time I looked in the mirror, I just saw something ugly. We see this at, uh, at the Red Sea. We see people in fear and complaining. But then the other narrative that was constantly playing in me, that just keeping me stuck, was bitterness. Bitterness and resentment. Uh, if you would go with me to Exodus chapter 15. And this is, again, after another miracle, after an amazing move, this parting of the Red Sea, right? And then here they are, you know, they just got through singing songs about how great God is and how delivered they are and all of that. And then they get, it says here, then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three, oops, for three days. There we go, I got, got to get my place here, sorry. They traveled in the desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Mara, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Mara, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord showed him a piece of wood. And Moses threw it in, into the water. And this made the water good to drink. In other translations, it said it made the water sweet. One of the things that I find in, in the narrative that keeps playing with bitterness and resentment is if only, if only I didn't have a father that abused me. If only I had somebody more supportive. If only I had this, or if only I had that, or if only I had this opportunity, or if only I had that opportunity. If only I'd gotten this information 40 years ago. Right? We, we hear a message of, of liberty. We hear a message of transformation. And then it's, and we're excited, but then we're also bitter because why couldn't I have gotten this before? My life would be so much better now if I had gotten this before. And so we still remain stuck and trapped in this narrative of bitterness. The interesting thing in both of these stories, before the Red Sea and after the Red Sea, is that the answers were right in front of them, but they just didn't see it. The, the, the people complain, 
And it's interesting because uh, Moses tells them, stand still and see the salvation of God. And, then, uh, and, his, and so it sounds, you know, like very assuring and very, very powerful. But then the very next thing that we read is God saying to Moses, why are you complaining to me for? It's like, oh, what, really? He was, that whole time he was complaining? He said, see that stick in your hand that I gave you, that rod? Stretch it out. And he stretches it out. And the Red Sea parts, and they're, able, they're no longer stuck. They're able to move forward. And the same thing happens again when they're at Mara. The, the waters are bitter. And it says, oh, again, it's, just, it's the same complaint. It, it was so much better for us when we were enslaved. Really? Was it really? Was it really better? I mean, yes, there are, there are times in despair and hopelessness. We surrender to it, but we know deep in our hearts it's not better. We know and learn and yearn and long for something more. And the answer again is just right in front of him. God says, put the tree in the water. And it, I find that when we are still and when we are silent, and whether it's in therapy or whether it's in spiritual direction or whatever it is, we hear the voice of God with something so simple and yet so transformative that it makes the bitterness sweet. Joseph. Joseph makes this statement in Genesis 50-20. It's not on the slide, so don't worry about this. But Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear what you meant for my harm. God turned it to my good for the saving of many. And I always wonder, how did Joseph have that kind of mentality? I mean, what was it? Because he gets this dream when he's 17. And I, that's why I so relate to Joseph, because I, God spoke to me as a teenager when I was 17 and was showing me these, these things that I would become. And I was just terrified to believe that it was actually possible in my own life. And then his He's betrayed by his brothers, and he's thrown into a pit, and he's sold into slavery, and, uh, and then he's, uh, uh, he's falsely accused of rape, and then he ends up in even, an even worse prison. And it's something, when Joseph sees his brothers again, it's during the years of, of lack, those seven years of lack, and that's when it says Joseph remembered the dream. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because before all this happens and he interprets uh, Pharaoh's dream and he gets married and he has children, he names his children something significant. The firstborn is named Manasseh. And Manasseh means God has caused me to forget the sorrow or the grief or the suffering or the pain that I've endured from my father's house to now. And then the second son he names Ephraim. And Ephraim means God has caused me to prosper in the land of my suffering. And for a moment, I thought, oh, well, of course he's naming his sons this because he remembered the dream. But he wasn't at a place of remembering the dream. He was interpreting the dreams of others. And isn't that true for so many of us? We are always there to help somebody else. But we don't have that same belief for ourselves. And that's where we find Joseph. So I don't know what it was, but something 
happened with Joseph that overwhelmed him in such a way that every time he spoke the name of his children, he was speaking God's goodness. And so by the time he sees the brothers who caused all the suffering in his life, for him, those years were insignificant compared to what God was doing in his life right then. Erica, can I use you for a moment? And those of you that I, uh, that I talked to about being a volunteer, come on down. I feel like, come on down. This is your time on The Price is Right. Okay, what, I'm gonna, what Erica's going to do is hand each of you a peacock feather. It did look pitiful. It was like the, like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. You know, it was just like. Oh, that one's beautiful. All right, Mickey, that's what I'm talking about. Yes, you got to give us some love. All right, seeing the opportunity instead of the obstacle. All right, here's what I want you to do. Yeah, that'll preach, huh? Oh, I am preaching. All right, there we go. All right, all right, here we go. Here we go. This is what I want you to do. I want you to take the peacock feather, put it at the tip of your middle finger, and I, no, you're going to take the tip of the peacock feather, the, yes, like that, put it on the end, and I want you to look where the tip meets your finger and try to balance it. Go. Oh, Mickey. All right, so you were doing that looking at the, Mickey, you were looking at the tip? All right, man, you've got some, all right, all right, stop, now let's try this again. Do the same thing, but this time I want you to focus at the top of the feather and try to balance it. All right, isn't it something that the difference between balance and unbalance is just a matter of where you focus. All right, we're done. No. <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you. Uh, okay. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela spent 27 hard years in prison. And this is what he said. As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. When Nelson Mandela was released from prison, he was released into a country that was still bound by apartheid. He could have chosen to go anywhere. He could have lived in any country of his choosing as a celebrity, but instead he chose to stay and dismantle apartheid. And who would have blamed him if he went someplace else, considering how horrendous living in that kind of condition would be? Which brings us back to the Africans in America. Here's some surprising data. Of the 400,000 Africans that were free 
1860, the majority of them lived in the South and not the North. Prior to 1865, there was, a ne- there was never a time in America that there were more free slaves in the North than in the South. There was always more free slaves in the South than there was in the North. But yet, we would imagine that it would be just the opposite. Of the four million slaves that were emancipated, the large number that stayed in the South did not stay because they were stuck and conditioned. They saw the opportunity to own and work their own land. They built, they built towns, they built parks, they built cities, they built Black Wall Street, and two, two African Americans out of Mississippi at the Reconstruction became senators. No other African American became a senator until the, I think, 1967. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I know those are all amens. Thank you, thank you. How we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we see others is the difference between seeing obstacles and seeing opportunities. I am right now going to send you back into your groups and answer the following question. What mindset or narrative do you need to let go of and embrace the new? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.